Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. That's page 837 in the blue Bibles under the chairs. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please tune our hearts to hear the words of your spirit this morning. And as we open your written word, um, make us thirst to hang on your every word and what it means for us. Amen. Mark 1, 35 to 45. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer, go, could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. My wife saved some money and bought a new rug for our living room and I spilled coffee on it. So, yeah, that's right. This happened about a year or so ago. So Jill does a great job making our house into a home. I do a good job of being a little too at home in the home. And literally, this is literally the morning after we got this new rug in the living room. I spilled coffee on it. I don't have an excuse. That's just what happened, okay? I don't know. So... Uh, we cleaned it. Well, I cleaned it. <laughs> I cleaned it a lot before she saw it. Um, but she did see it. And uh, so then we cleaned it together. Or we tried to. And so we got it up for the most part. But if we're honest, uh, there's still a stain on this rug. Even if it's faint, even if you may not see it or know where to look. We know, we know that there's this uncleansable stain, and it's really frustrating for at least one of us a lot. <clears throat> the truth is that we all know this feeling, don't we? Not this feeling that I'm having as a husband, but the feeling of having this, uh, this knowledge that deep down, even if no one else can see it, we're unclean. We, we know that there's this uncleansable stain 
in us, uh, this stain with which we're born, um, with which we uh, make decisions and live out our lives, one that we can't rid ourselves of, and it's just there. This is what the Bible calls a stain of sin. It's what makes us spiritually unclean. And it begs the question for all of us, what's your plan for getting spiritually clean? This morning, as we jump back into the book of Mark for a few weeks, this passage would have us consider this wonderful truth. And that is this, just very simply, I think this is the main point. Jesus has both the desire and the ability to cleanse people from their sin. This is what we see in Jesus' dealings with, uh, or illustrated in his dealings with the leprous man in verses 40 and 45, 40 through 45. We'll, we'll get there in a few minutes and see Jesus' pity, see his power. We'll spend some significant time there. But before we get there, we have a brief narrative you see there that David just read for us, verses 35 through 39, by which Mark seems to be communicating a couple of realities that help kind of define and confine Jesus's ministry. Those two things are Jesus' prayer and Jesus' preaching. So we're going to get to Jesus' pity and Jesus' power, but note that these are in the context of his prayer and his preaching. You know what I'm going to say, right? This is like the best alliteration that's ever come to me, and you're welcome, because we're going to cover a, a lot of different things today. Hopefully these things, these four Ps, help you to commit some of these things to memory as we go. Prayer and preaching, pity and power. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 through 39, I think they're very helpful for us in keeping in mind the overarching priorities and purposes of Jesus' ministry while on earth. So once baptized, once anointed with the Spirit, once commended by the Father as his beloved Son, once he set out on the ministry of the kingdom, what foundational purpose characterized Jesus' ministry. I think this is what Mark's showing us here. Two foundational things, prayer and preaching. We'll just take them in turn. Number one, Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer. Let's just paint the picture of where we are here in the narrative of Mark. So the disciples have just witnessed this, uh, this unexpected, unprecedented night of miraculous ministry. You remember that from a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 1? So all kinds of sick and diseased and demon-oppressed people... They've come to see Jesus at Simon Peter's house, and they all leave healed. He's just, he's just healing people left and right, casting out demons left and right. And in our passage now, here we are finally in the quiet home of Peter. The ministry went late into the night, but now it's quiet. Everyone in the house is in one of those deep sleeps that you get after an especially grueling day. It's it's in the early hours of the morning. It's still dark, verse 35 tells us. But in the darkness, one person stirs. This person, he gets up, he stretches, he, he puts on his sandals, he goes out into a desolate place to pray. And this is Jesus, verse 35. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. To me, this is one of the more remarkable statements in the gospel story. Jesus prayed. 
Jesus, the, the eternal son of God, having taken on flesh and come to earth, having done lots of good to lots of people, he left the presence of those people to be out in the presence of his heavenly father. He gets up early while it's still dark. He gets up alone. He goes out, not to a sacred building, but to a, but to a desolate place. And there he's praying. And it would seem that he's there praying for a long time because, because people, people wake up and they realize he's not there and they're looking for him. They find him. And it begs the question that I think will be helped to consider for a moment. That question is, why? Why is he praying? So, so I'm curious. I want to do a little thought or kind of word association experiment here with all of us together. All right, so, all right, so just think about what we have here in Mark 135. So here we have a person who, who wakes up before the sun, who, who's up before anyone else, gets out of bed on their own with, uh, when no one else does, gets out of the house, gets alone, all these things, <clears throat> goes out to pray. All right, so here's my question. Just think, think to yourself. All right, what word would you use to describe a person who lives like this? All right, so I have, I have a word in mind. It starts with a D, okay? What word, starting with a D, comes in mind to you? All right, can you think of one? We're going to say it together. One, two, three, dependent. What did you say? All right, so I said dependent. Anyone say disciplined? Anyone say dedicated? You know, I was first reading this, taking in the description of Jesus. My first, the natural thought that came to me was this is an incredible model of self-discipline, right? And perhaps it is. But it's interesting that when we see a man, in this case Jesus, rising early, sacrificing sleep, putting in lots of effort, all in order to spend time with his father in prayer, we tend to think of that person being disciplined, but we don't tend to readily think of him being dependent. So there are only three accounts of Jesus praying in the Gospel of Mark, and it seems to me that these are serving to highlight not Jesus' discipline, but his dependence. It seems especially evident in the third account of Jesus praying, which is in the garden, in Gethsemane, so before his crucifixion, right? So Jesus takes a few of his disciples. He says, pray for me, pray with me. He goes a little further, and he's pouring out his heart to the Father, right? My sense is that Jesus doesn't press his way into the garden because he's really disciplined, but because he's dependent. In other words, Jesus prayed because as a man, he knew that he had to. And I would just ask by way of application, how about us? How about you? So I'm guessing that as a, as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus, you have a great desire to walk out your submission to him in great obedience, right? And my, my guess is that as part of that, you know your need to pray. But here's the question. What, what if we did a similar word association experiment with your prayer life? What, what D word would you most associate with your prayer life? Discipline or dependence? You know, both of these are good things, obviously. But it's interesting that great discipline doesn't necessarily lead to great dependence, does it? But dependence, when you know you need the Lord's help, well, that'll lead you to discipline. We all know the difference in our prayer lives when we really, truly, when we know that we need the Lord's help. 
Jesus, as the perfect man, he knew his dependence perfectly. He knew, he felt his constant need to be with the Father whom he loved from all eternity. So what did he do? He prayed. I just want to encourage you this morning that this wonderful gift which Jesus had at his disposal, you have too. You have it. You too have available to you regular, daily, constant communion with your heavenly Father through prayer. And I would encourage you that the main ingredient you need for this is not great discipline, but a great sense of your dependence on him. So Jesus is out praying alone. Meanwhile, these, uh, these newly called disciples are back home. Remember, this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. He, he just met some of these men. And one of those men, Simon Peter, who we know from the rest of the story, is not the most poised of the bunch. You can imagine Peter back at the house, right, in a bit of a, a, bit of a panic. He wakes up, and Jesus isn't there. But who is there, evidently? Evidently, m- there are more people who've heard of this kind of miraculous stuff that he's doing, and they want to see more of it, so they're looking for Jesus. So Peter scrambles, because if he's honest, Peter wants to see more of it too. This Jesus who called him as a disciple, he's amazing. He just keeps doing amazing stuff. He heals people. He casts demons out. So Peter takes a, a few guys, and they're on a manhunt for Jesus. And, and finally, they come to a desolate place in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> kind of weird, Jesus, but okay. They find him. And they say, ooh, okay, all right, there you are. All right, come on, Jesus, come on. All right, you're going to love this. We've got another crowd lined up already at the house. It's going to be another great day. And how does Jesus respond? He says, yeah, um, we're going to leave. I think this is where Mark is showing us a second defining pillar of Jesus' ministry, and that is Jesus' preaching. Look at verse 36. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. In verse 37, everyone's looking for Jesus. That's what Peter says. So now Jesus is popular and effective in his ministry. He is a success So word on the street is that if you come to Jesus as a physically sick or demonically oppressed person, you will leave well, which it seems is pretty much true in the gospel narratives, which is why the disciples mistakenly assume that this must be the the main task of his earthly ministry. Jesus seemed to have a knack for healing, for delivering the oppressed, and here's a crowd who wants to be healed and delivered, so Jesus, we should probably go to that crowd. And to this idea, the idea of seeking out crowds who are clamoring for healing, Jesus says no. So so Jesus emerges in verse 35. He emerges from his prayer time with the Father with a crystal clear picture of what it is that he's been called to. A picture that cannot be deterred even by a huge crowd of folks who who are calling for his attention uh, into the direction of other noble, good, right things. Everyone is looking for you, Peter says. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So we already know from the first words of Jesus' ministry back in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus is about one central thing. Mark makes this clear by giving this to us right at the beginning. 
And, it, and the one central thing is not relieving physical sickness. What is it? He says there, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is back in chapter 1, verse 14, 15. In saying, this is Jesus' first words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The point being, Jesus has already made it clear that he is not after intrigue and attraction that's void of spiritual life. He's after repentance and faith, which means in his everyday ministry, he's mainly about not healing and exercising, but about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is what Sipo hammered out so well for us last month. Jesus' purpose was not to heal as many people as possible. His purpose was to confront people with the news that in this man, Christ Jesus, the one true God is invading the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of heaven. And the time to choose allegiance is at hand. That's what it means when the kingdom of God has come. It's time to respond to what God is doing through Christ. So Jesus isn't doing impressive things for people's amusement. He's preaching a message for people's salvation. That's what he says. Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. So once baptized, in the limited time that he had left, Jesus' ministry is about getting out a message. And so he went about it. There's a summary statement, I think, there in verse 39. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus goes about his ministry, and he does so not by setting up healing booths or deliverance events or healing services. He goes about his ministry by meeting people at their place of worship, the synagogue. And he preaches there, and in so much as it would serve to validate the message of the kingdom of God, demonstrating his authority, he'll cast out demons along the way. He'll heal sickness along the way. The point is there's one thing necessary, one indispensable thing in Jesus' ministry and in our ministry. And it's the proclamation that Jesus is king. And that, and that all are called, all are welcomed, all are commanded to turn from the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of self, to trust in the king alone. This, by the way, it's, it's why we're, we're still here as a church. We're still here so that we might proclaim to more people the truth that the one true eternal king has come for his people. That Jesus has come in the flesh and bought his people with the price of his own blood. The, the question this brings to everyone is, have you responded? Have you, have you repented? Have you turned from a life of sin and believed and trusted in Christ for your salvation? So prayer and preaching. Jesus is demonstrating his great dependence on the Father and his great clarity of purpose. Two things they characterized him through and through, which ought to characterize us as well. Now, you would think, with all that Jesus has just made clear about his preaching purpose in his ministry, the next thing we'd encounter is a long sermon. But it's not. Not here in Mark. Instead, what we encounter next is an obvious interruption in the preaching ministry. Do you see that? But it's an interruption that gives us a window into the very heart of Christ. So in verses 40 through 45, we have a really interesting situation in which to observe the heart and the ability of Jesus, or the, the pity and the power of 
Jesus. In that situation is this. A leper gets close to Jesus. All right, so here I think we see number three, Jesus' pity, his pity. Verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. A leper came to Jesus. Again, that in itself is an arresting statement. So, so in the Bible and in history, a, a leper is no ordinarily afflicted person. A leper was, was justly and universally declared to be unclean. Okay? It was obvious because they wore this uncleanness on their body in the form of rashes and ulcers and sores for all the world to see with no way to cover it up. So to be a leper, it was said, was to experience what they called a living death. Lepers were people who suffered from the affliction of leprosy were considered to be living corpses. And this was because the disease was as incurable as it was ostracizing. So this unclean was their state. And, and it was known that this wasn't changing, which is why the leper in this story and throughout the Bible is untouchable. So to touch the unclean was to become unclean yourself. So the leper lived this death in exile, away from the community, away from family, away from holy places, away from everyone. And religion didn't even help them because according to the law, our leper was officially, ceremonially unclean without any way to get clean. This was just their state. This was their identity. They were unclean. They watched, right? So they, they watched people enter the, the temple. They, they are covered in their defects. And they watch others go to worship, sacrifice, experience the purging they need to atone for their impurities. But they don't participate themselves. This is the leper, hopelessly impure. A leper is an isolated, lonely, shunned, ignored, detested, untouchable, unclean person. Everybody knew this. And what does this leper do here in Mark? He comes right up to Jesus in faith. Let me, let me show you this faith. Verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling. All right, so again, note this audacity. A leper came to Jesus. The, the Old Testament law was not unclear about what life was supposed to look like for someone afflicted with leprosy. It, it, the law regulated what a leper wore, uh, what they said, what they did, where they were to be, where they were not to be. And where a leper was not to be was right up here in another person's space. In fact, if anyone got too close, a leper was supposed to yell out, unclean! So they wouldn't make the mistake of getting too close. Yet, here in Mark 1, this leper just completely ignores this Old Testament requirement to keep the distance. Instead, he comes right up to Jesus, and he says something remarkable. Look at verse 40. If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, here's the thing. Again, as we've said, leprosy is incurable. No one had the ability or authority to cleanse a leper. It didn't happen. So the Old Testament law does speak to priests regarding people afflicted with leprosy, 
But when it does, all it does is give instructions on how to tell if a person had happened to be cleaned. There are no instructions on how to do actual cleansing because it wasn't possible, at least not by human hands. So in the Old Testament, there are two instances in which a leper is cleansed. In both instances, it's God who does the healing. And yet, listen to the words of the leper, of the leper in Mark chapter 1. Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. This, to me, is faith. The leper is completely convinced of Jesus' ability, his power. He says, you are able. His question, what he needs to know, is this. Jesus, are you you willing? Jesus, if you want to, I know you can cleanse me. You You see kind of the bigger question that he's asking even for our purposes? The leper comes to Jesus, and what he wants to know, he knows Jesus' ability. What he wants to know is what's his heart. Jesus, what's your heart for unclean people who come to you in faith? It's like he's saying, okay, Jesus, I've heard this message. I know you're you're a king. I know you have a kingdom, and I know that you're going to rule over your people in holiness forever. And I even know what you do for the sick. I know what you do for the demonically oppressed. You like to heal them. You like to liberate them. But here's the question. What what about those who have a different problem, Jesus? What about those who need to be not just healed, but cleansed? You see what he's asking? Jesus, do 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 you wash up dirty people? Or do they need to kind of set on set out on an impossible task of cleaning themselves up. What, what do I do here? You know, I, I wonder if you can resonate with the leper here in Mark chapter 1. You know, maybe you're a person who knows all well, all too well how dirty you are, so maybe you're all too familiar with your, your sexual immorality, your, your drunkenness, your thought life, your lusts, your desires that are depraved, your debauched habits. Your question, like the lepers, is, okay, what what is Jesus' heart for the undeniably unclean person? If that's you, let let me encourage you. Let this leper stand in your place right here. Let him him be your representative. So here here he is, uh, his leprous, unclean, impure, infected condition on full display for everybody to see. And this leper is at the as at the total disposal of one person, Jesus. You see how, you see how he's made himself completely vulnerable in this narrative? So if, if Jesus doesn't come through, this leper's in huge trouble. So if, if he throws himself in front of Jesus, and he throws all his hopes on what he knows to be true of Jesus, and Jesus is something other than he's hoping him to be, then he's in huge trouble. So the question Right here in the narrative, the tension, I think, is high. The question is, what would Jesus do? What does Jesus have for the unclean who come to him in faith? Verse 41. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Again, just pause. Take this in. Jesus touched a leper. 
You know, there's more to say, and we'll get to it here in just a second. But just hear this again. Jesus touched a leper. In the Bible, there is one type of person who is set aside as too unclean, too gross, too dirty. There's, there's one and only one type of person who's so unclean that literally everyone in the world has a legitimate excuse not to be around them. There's one person under the law whose very identity is unclean. That person, therefore, is not to be touched. That person is a leper. And here in Mark chapter 1, in God's providence, to put his, his heart, to put his compassion on full display, just such a person plants themselves right in front of Jesus and asks for help. And Jesus touched the leper. Listen, I, I, I'm sure that there's some of us here whose only struggle larger than our sin is our struggle to come to Jesus after we sin. I know there are some whose uh, your thoughts of your, your history, uh, your impurity, they lead you to feel unredeemable. Maybe you feel untouchable. Let me just offer this one word for you as something to remember, and that is this, Jesus touched a leper. In other words, whatever it is in your mind that makes you label yourself untouchable, you are not more untouchable than the one that Jesus touches right here in Mark chapter 1. While he was still leprous, while he was still full of sores, while he was still unclean and justifiably condemned, Jesus touched the leper. And get this. Do you realize... Do you realize he didn't need to? <laughs> Think about it. Jesus, he makes it clear on other occasions that he does not need to touch someone in order to work a miracle. His word is sufficient for the miracle. Think about Lazarus. How, how did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? He spoke to him. He said, Lazarus, Lazarus, get up, come out. He could have done that here. He could have looked at the leper, felt compassion, snapped his fingers and said, oh, you're healed. But he didn't. He touched the leper. When, when do you think was the last time this leper had been physically touched by another person? Months? Years? Decades? And Jesus touched him. <laughs> Why? When, because when no one else can or when no one else will or no one else should, Jesus touches the untouchable. And he does this, he can do this, because when Jesus, unlike us, when Jesus touches those who are unclean, he doesn't get their condition. They get his You see Jesus' heart of compassion for the unclean. If you, if you can't see it, then hear it. Verse 41, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. The, the word here for I will, is a, it's a word of desire. I, I would, it seems like you could translate that, I want to. This is what I want. And here, when approached with the question of whether he would clean up an unclean person, 
Jesus doesn't just say, I can. He says, I, I want to. If you want to, you can make me clean. I want to. Be clean. This is the heart of Jesus. Jesus has pity for the unclean person who comes to him in faith. Jesus wants, this is his desire, he wants to clean the unclean. And the good news is, as the leper knows, not only does Jesus want to cleanse the unclean, but he can. He can. He has the power and authority to do it. This is the fourth point, and that's Jesus' power. His power. Jesus' amazing, uh, unmatched pity is matched by his power. Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. The man comes to Jesus in an uncleansable condition, and with one touched, touch from Jesus, he is cleansed immediately. Jesus has the desire to cleanse the unclean, and crucially, he has the ability to cleanse the unclean. Again, again, just slow down and think of it for a second. So here's a leper. He's been identified as such. He's known as such. What, what do you think this man had tried before he came to Jesus? How many different ways has he tried to cleanse himself before finally hearing of someone who seems likely that he might actually be, be able and willing to, to cleanse him? How many hours of, of self-scrubbing or medical attention or covering up his sores with external things? And all he had to do all along was come to Jesus in faith. How about you? How about us? How many different ways have you tried to cleanse yourself up from your sin? You know, maybe you're here and you're a Christian, or maybe not. Either way, in either state, this is a problem for us believers as well. We are tempted to all types of self-cleansing before we come to Christ, aren't we? We fall into that same sin again. So we think, okay, this was, okay, like a hundred times, like that was, like, like Jesus was gracious for that. But the hundred and first time, I got to do something. Okay, so I got I to gotta atone for this thing. So we enter into this path that, that veers from the gospel, this path of self-atonement, of self-cleansing. And maybe, strangely to us, that maybe, maybe that means the path of, of self-harm. Like, okay, I got, if I beat myself up, then he'll see that, and I can, I can now come. Or maybe it's, maybe it's our version of, of Hail Marys, however many, whatever that would look like, and however many you think might match the sin. Maybe it's just, okay, I just need a season of improved obedience, and then I can come back to Christ in faith. Whatever it is, we search for different kind of fig leaves, don't we, to cover this thing up. We think, we'll do these, I'll do this, and I'll, you know, I'll check that off, and then I'll come back to Christ. But you see, don't you? The leper, the leper is you. Which means, like him, you, you can't cleanse yourself. The stain of your sin goes way deeper than the sores on this man's skin. What the truth is, according to the Bible, that we need someone, we need something completely outside of ourselves to cleanse us from the inside out. And the Bible says, the gospel says, that that one person is Jesus 
And the one thing is his atoning blood shed for sinners on the cross to cleanse them from their sin. Listen to a few passages. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter. <clears throat> Where is this? 1 Peter 1, 2? I didn't even 1 Peter 1. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, what were you ransomed with? Perishable things, things that you did, things that you offered, things that you did to yourself to make yourself really sorry so that you can finally come to Christ. You were ransomed, not with perishable, perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, Marty read this for us earlier. Or do you not know, listen to this, listen to this really bad news. You do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus has come proclaiming in the gospel of Mark. You will not inherit it if you are this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards. Has he left anybody out? I don't think so. Nor the revelers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But what? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the Bible, cleansing a person from leprosy is something reserved for God alone. And praise God, in the same way, cleansing a person from the stain of sin is something reserved for Christ alone alone. So let me just encourage you this morning that you can leave behind once and for all all your futile efforts to cleanse yourself from sin. Your efforts to pay for your sin, your efforts to kind of tip the scale of righteousness back in your direction, it doesn't work. And, and get this, not only does it not work, but when we do that, we're actually robbing Jesus of the glory that's due him. Because the very reason Jesus went to the cross was to shed his blood, which blood which alone can wash people from the stain of their sin. So whatever spiritual soaps that you've been using to scrub yourself clean from sin, you can put them down. I know we're tempted to all kinds of different fig leaves, but just... Resist covering up your sin. Resist covering up your shame. And what you do instead is you come to Christ with it all. With it all. Jesus knew immediately this man was leprous, and he knows immediately that you're unclean in your sin. And you can come to him. Don't hide it. Don't hide it. Here's what I mean very practically. When you sin... You can resist going to this kind of garden hose of, of works to, to make up for it. Instead, you can just picture it. You, you can go to this Niagara Falls of, of Jesus' work on the cross. That you, once, once in, you can't get out. You are in. And you're being washed. Follow, follow the leper. Follow the untouchable to Christ and say to Christ in faith, I know who I am. I know what I look like. I know what this is. I'm unclean. I'm all these things. I'm untouchable. I'm all this. If you will, you can make me clean. And the gospel says he will. Jesus does not turn away unclean people to co who come to him in faith. 
Now, this, this obviously doesn't mean that we go back to sin on purpose so that grace may abound, right? That's another sermon we don't have for this time. The point for now is this. Jesus loves it when unclean people come to him in faith. He doesn't tolerate these people. He loves it because he loves cleansing what's unclean, and he can. Jesus can cleanse what is unclean. He can purify what is unpure, even you, even you. When we come to Christ and we confess our sin and all its impurity and we ask him to make us clean, he does. If you're a Christian here this morning, let me encourage you. If you are in Christ by faith, you are clean. You have been washed by the blood of the lamb. The words of the hymn that we sing every baptism, they're true. There really is a fountain that's filled with blood, is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners who are plunged beneath that flood, what what do they do? They lose all their guilty stains. I love this. Don't you love the the Q&A, kind of the catechizing format of there's power in the blood? The, The verse asks, would you be free from the burden of sin? Well, there's power in the blood. Would you over victory, uh, over evil, a victory win? There is wonderful power in the blood. Do you notice in this hymn, it keeps going and it doesn't offer a different solution, right? Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's power, there's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter? Would you be brighter than snow? Well, there's power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. This is good news of the gospel. Remember also, remember what this leper, remember what his uncleanness meant for him in practical life. He was isolated from his family. He was left out of social relationships. He was exiled from the community, from corporate worship. But now what's happened? Now that he's clean, he's restored we won't read it, but it, the passage goes on. Once, <clears throat> once he had no business being in the covenant community. Now he has no business keeping himself out of the covenant community. Jesus commands him to go and offer the right sacrifice for proof to the priest that you really have been healed of this unhealable, uncleansable thing. He had no right not to. He was in. And you know that's the same for you, Christian. Were you once isolated? Were you once exiled outside of the community? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these are things that you were. You were, but not anymore. Now you're in. And you have no business keeping yourself out. There's power in the blood. There's there's a lot more in this passage uh, that we could say. So Jesus commands the man to be quiet about it all. In this weird kind of like uh, utterly human moment, he totally disobeys. <laughs> he goes and blabs this news all over. It totally blows Jesus' cover. He can't go out and preach like he wants to anymore. Jonesy will pick it up from there next week. For now, we have these things to keep in mind. So Mark gives us these defining, these confining realities of Je- Jesus' ministry. He's, he's praying and he's preaching. And we have at the heart, <clears throat> or excuse me, we have displayed for us the heart and the ability of Jesus, his pity and his power. He wants and he can cleanse us from our sin. And we do have, as always, some immediate, wonderful, immediate application. 
for everyone who's been cleansed, who's come to the fountain that's filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We come and we remember the one who's done the cleansing. And that's what we do here at the Lord's table. We come and worship Jesus Christ, who loves to clean up the untouchable, those who are unclean, with his own blood. Let's pray together. Father, we give you glory as the one who desires to uh, draw your people back to yourself. Uh, We give you glory, uh, Christ, as the one who has done the work of drawing your people back to yourself. Help us as those who are tempted to keep our distance from you because of our perceived and real uncleanness. Uh, We pray that by your spirit, we would more readily come uh, and draw near to you because of what Uh, Christ has done on the cross through his blood. In Jesus' name, amen.